We are live. Welcome to the Carl Vibe Show. I am joined today with the distinguished Dr. Paul H. Smith. He is one of the longest serving controlled remote viewing instructors today, originally part of the military's Stargate remote viewing program, working with the likes of Dr. Hal Putoff, Ingo Swan, and many others since 1983. Paul has also authored books uh, entitled uh, Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, uh, the official Stargate program that the military ran using uh, remote viewing, and a book about that, as well as the essential guide to remote viewing, as well as appeared on many television programs, radio stations, and uh, films regarding the subject of remote viewing. And without further ado, let's go ahead and bring uh, Dr. Paul Smith on board uh, into the show. Paul, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm, I'm as good as could be expected. Well, good. I'm really excited to have you. As far as I'm considered, and this might be a little bit over the top from your opinion, but I've researched uh, remote viewing and followed this uh, since the longest time that I can remember. And the way that I see it, the research that you've done and the work that you've put into the phenomenon of remote viewing, as well as others like you, especially Ingo Swan, Hal Putoff, many of these uh, people that have been on the forefront of this. To me, you guys are, are just like Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin exploring a new frontier, except for going, instead of going into outer space, you're exploring the nature of human consciousness and reality in a way uh, like nobody else that, that I know. So Paul, uh, first of all, why don't you go ahead and give everybody just a little bit of a background about what you do. You're currently an instructor in remote viewing, but you got started clear back in 19, 19- 83 when you uh, joined the military. So go ahead and give us a background. Well, I, I, uh, I'm actually from Southern Nevada, so I'm not that far from home originally, right? Um, I did an Army career, uh, did a mission for the LDS Church, went to college, got a degree from Brigham Young University, and then ended up in the Army. And, uh, and for most of that time, I did normal Army stuff. But for seven years... I was a psychic spy for the military, and I have to tell you, I, I didn't set out to be that. Uh, I, they came looking for me, which was uh, a surprise at the time, but uh, but I was glad they did. Um, and so for those seven years, I was first taught how to do what we call controlled remote viewing by the people who developed remote viewing in the first place, uh, Dr. Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan. And then once I'd learned it, I both did it. Um, I probably have a, at least a thousand operational remote viewing sessions that I've done, and um, and also taught others how to do it. Uh, that's why I'm the longest-serving CRV or controlled remote viewing teacher actually active, is because we started right out of the bat and uh, right off the right out of the box, off the bat, whatever, <laughs> and started training people in this process at Fort Meade. Uh, and uh, so I was teaching and doing it. Uh, seven years later, though, I, somebody decided to throw a war and invite me to it. I got, I got dragged off to Desert Storm, which was, it was, it was an interesting experience, I have to say. Um, but I, I was an intel officer, so if I ended up in a firefight, I had done something stupid. Right. Uh, something so, had gone horribly wrong, if that was the something case. Something got horribly wrong. Uh, my job was to keep everybody out of firefights if we could, right? And right. mostly succeeded at that, which was good. Um, and then ultimately I retired from the Army, and shortly after that I 
set up a company where I teach people to do what uh, the taxpayers paid me to learn how to do. Um, and I've been busy at that ever since, closing in on 30 years now of that. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I still do operational remote viewing from time to time and certainly act as a consultant and an advisor in the field. I uh, do a lot of interviews like yours uh, because I, I really believe in this. I think it's an important thing for people to understand, uh, both not just for what you can do with it, but, but because of what it says about human nature that we really are more than just our physical bodies, that there is a, well, I'll, for the sake of labels, I'll, I'll say there's a non-physical component to our consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, is an idea rejected by mainstream science, uh, incorrectly and improperly rejected, in my opinion, but that's a different argument, right? So I, I think it's a great argument. It's one that I try to tackle on this show, and when I guest appear all the time on others, is that we have a perspective of reality that's completely based on physics. And just right off, out of the gate, uh, the word physics implies that it's restricted to physical matter and physical nature. And you're talking about something with remote viewing that is more to do with not the non-physical, non-physical nature, which is all of the subconscious mind, the the dreamscapes of reality, the, the uh, places that we go... Uh, in between normal waking reality and sleep, some of these altered states of consciousness and how that's connected to reality mm-hmm. as a whole. I, I think before we jump deeply into the nature of reality and human consciousness, we can get into that. But I'm really curious when you started, uh, you actually worked in remote viewing uh, in the military as a remote viewer uh, in order to do counterterrorism, finding missing people. What exactly did you do for the military? I, I would like to build kind of a foundation of scaffolding of legitimacy and how remote viewing works and get into the double blind method and all that. Why the military would be using remote viewing in the beginning? Well, so over the course of my career and of course the course of the program as a whole, we at one time or another addressed every problem that, my, that confronted the, the intelligence community in the military. Um, I won't say every particular case, but every kind of case, right? So um, we looked for, they sent us out to try and locate, sent us out, that's a figurative speech, right? Right. They, they uh, tasked us to try and find hostages in the Middle East, in the Bekaa Valley, uh, the, the Westerners that were kidnapped by Hezbollah and others, and... Uh, they task us to try and find out about Soviet, new Soviet weapon systems, Chinese nuclear tests, um, deployment of troops, uh, unusual things. They couldn't figure out what they were, uh, get into denied facilities, uh, science and technology sites that the Soviets had kept secret. Mm-hmm. Um, we got into the war on drugs. We did a lot of taskings against uh, various narco-trafficking uh, events and and. and drug smuggling and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, just about anything that the military would, or the intelligence community or both were, were um, needing information on, we were tasked on. And sometimes we weren't maybe all that successful in some of them, but we were extremely successful in others. Mm-hmm. So this is the thing that when, when I tell people about it, particularly if I'm discussing with some scientist or even a skeptic, I'll say, you're right, yeah, there were times it didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And I say there were times when it absolutely did work and uh, actually provided useful, actionable information that Mm. did solve some intelligence community problems. 
Definitely. And that, those are the cases that I'm really fascinated in is because because of the nature of remote viewing and the fact that it is hard to validate and know exactly when you have successfully viewed a target and you've got useful, actionable intel off of that. There are measures that have developed over the years, uh, like the double blind method or working as a team so that uh, there's multiple remote viewers working together and they none of them know what what the target is. Can you describe a little bit about how that method works to provide some of that background? Like how do they uh, ensure that the data that comes back off of the remote viewing session is something that can be compared to other remote viewers and maybe give more of a clearer picture of how that okay. works? So, so there's two, two ways of, of uh, discussing this. One is to talk about the protocol. Mm-hmm. And the other is to talk about the method, okay? Okay. Uh, the method is the techniques that you use to employ or deploy remote viewing. The protocol is the conditions under which you do it. So it sounds to me like you're asking a protocol question here. Sure. So, what's, the, what's the protocol for remote viewing? To- so in remote viewing, uh, except in certain environments, generally speaking, uh, you want the viewer to be totally blind to the target. In fact, that's that's almost universal. You want the viewer to be totally blind to the target. Um, and there's a couple reasons for this. The trivial reason is that if the remote viewer knows, knows what the target is, then any skeptic will come up and say, well, they're not remote viewing. They're just telling stuff they already know right. about the target. It turns out that actually, though, knowing what the target is or knowing too much about it in advance actually screws up the remote viewing because what happens is what the analyst wants in an, in an intelligence scenario or even in like a police case or whatever, what, what, what the analyst wants is to know what they don't know <laughs> about the target, right? That The goal yeah. is to collect information that isn't known. <clears throat> but if you know what the target is up front, the problem is everything that you already know, everything that you can guess, everything you can infer, any speculations, all that stuff is going on in your head all at the same time. And the the signal that brings the real information, the unknowns, uh, into your mind, it's so subtle that all of this racket going on of the guessing and the speculating and the already knows and all that kind of stuff, that that smothers a signal. You can't, it becomes very hard to distinguish what the new stuff is from the stuff that you already have in your head. Mm. And so having the viewer blind to the target, not having any idea what the target is, is very helpful in eliminating a lot of that, what we call mental noise, and it allows the very subtle or very nuanced signal that is present and, and trying to make its way in, uh, allows that to come through a lot more cleanly and with a less, lot less interruption. So it, it serves a very important and very valuable purpose that the viewer does not know what the target is. Now, the question always comes up, well, how do they then know how to go to it? We can talk about that in a little bit maybe, but, but <clears throat> let me talk about the rest of the protocol first. The second thing is you want, uh, in most cases, you want any persons associated with the viewer to be blind to the target as well. You don't want them to know anything about it either. Mm. The reason for that is there is this issue of nonverbal communications or even slips of the tongue or whatever. Somebody who knows what the target is, um, particularly if they're inexperienced with dealing with remote viewing, um, they could easily convey information to the viewer that isn't derived through if we'll call it psychic means through extrasensory perception. So you don't want them to, because that's also a form of noise. First of all, it may give you a false positive. If the viewer comes up with a piece of information that they 
that occurred to them because of some nonverbal action on the part of the, or the person uh, opposite them. So this would um, be like the tasker knowing that it was the Eiffel Tower in France, and as yeah. he ha hands you the envelope, even though it's sealed, he's like, oh, oui, 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 good luck, monsieur. And he's, <laughs> and he's, he's bleeding over some hints to you. That kind of yes, ruins that the scientific be... method and also creates... Yes, now, and... now that would be way more obvious. Than <laughs> right, it. I'm being really... Usually <laughs> the, the, the conveyance of information is a lot, less a lot more unconscious than that, right? Right, but right. It all can happen, right? Okay. So we want to guard against that. Uh, and for another a couple reasons. First of all, the information that that monitor conveys non-verbally may not actually be helpful to what they really want to know, right? Mm -hmm. It may also serve as a kind of noise effect. Um, so, yeah, so you want both parties to be uh, blind. Now, of course, if we're doing a science experiment, it's even more crucial because you have to eliminate all possibilities of, of uh, leakage, non-psychic, non non-ESP leakage into the uh, experiment or then it throws the, the experiment into question whether it's legitimate or not. Uh, and I want to add, this is not uh, unique just to remote viewing or ESP kinds of ex uh, experiments. This is this is a an issue they have to control for in a lot of science research. That's mm -hmm. why there's a lot of double-bind protocols out there, even in medical science and that uh, research and that kind of thing. In fact, um, it was actually the parapsychology field that, that pioneered this double-blind protocol, and, and, and the rest of science has pretty much picked it up in those settings where it's important. Hmm. So um, it, it's it's a very valid, valid and a valuable technique, both as a research uh, protocol, but also in terms of collecting verifiable, useful information about a target in an ESP environment. That's fascinating. So the double-blind method not only is effective in validating the results, especially when you have multiple remote viewers that all don't know the target. It's two parts removed for them to even know uh, mm -hmm. what would be in the task or what the target would be. But not only that, the method of not having all of that jumbled up in their mind with preconceived ideas or imaginations or analytical overlay going on, uh, it's better for them to be more open and, and, and Zen-like in mm -hmm. going into it. Uh, so what can you describe very specifically what that double blind method would look like in a typical remote viewing session to, so that people get an idea of, okay, so let's say they, there's a, a, a building in, in Russia when you're part of the Stargate program, they mm -hmm. want to see what's being manufactured inside this building they can't right. see inside. So they task a unit of remote viewers, uh, you guys and your team, to basically look at this building that's maybe building something inside, manufacturing, and that's, and you don't even know that, uh, where it right. could be, even that it's maybe in Russia, even, you may not even know that. So right. maybe take us through that. Yeah, so so first off, the people who want you to do this will know a lot more about this than, uh, you know, like they'll know where it is, they'll know what it looks like, they may have satellite photos of the roof if we're talking about a, a building or a facility, right? Okay. Um, they just don't know what's going on inside. But what the viewer knows is nothing. <laughs> okay. So uh, an example of this might be, so in, in the early days when we were doing this, we actually used geographical coordinates. Okay. Uh, so latitude and longitude uh, to target the, the structure. Now, this is long before Google Earth. So generally speaking, unless you had some kind of map, you wouldn't really know where the coordinates pointed anyway. 
Right? Right. And even then, even with a map, it might not necessarily be helpful. Uh, but there was some concern about coordinates. One was that uh, all the remote viewers really did was memorize what was at the end of all the coordinates. Hmm. And then when you came in and gave them a tasking, they just knew what was already there. That, that was a, an argument from some of the critics and, and skeptics. Um, other than the fact that, that since there are literally billions of possible coordinate combinations, <laughs> and really infinite number, but billions as far as Earth, uh, Earth coordinates are concerned, um, it would be more of a miracle to be able to do that than it would be in a remote view, I would think. So, right. But the bigger issue was it was a mental noise issue because after a while, viewers actually tended to get a kind of uh, concept of where different coordinates pointed. For example, we did a lot of Soviet Union coordinates. After a while, you know that it's pointing somewhere in the, in the Soviet Union or maybe Latin America or whatever. And so... Um, when you got a, a Soviet coordinate, then you'd start imagining things. Oh, you know, it's uh, Siberia is cold and snowy, and there's wolves out on the steps, and there's there's pine trees, you know, you know and, and maybe it was a, a little snug laboratory in downtown Moscow. But mm -hmm. you had this noise going on. So this, they realized that the coordinates were not helpful. They were actually problematic. So they introduced what they called encrypted coordinates. And all this really was was a random number that was linked uh, by the tasker to uh, the intended purpose. So we'll use the Eiffel Tower example. Let's say when in a training environment, I want a viewer to, a student, we'll call a student, to remote view uh, the Eiffel Tower. Okay. So I don't tell that student remote view the Eiffel Tower. What I'll do is I'll write down, and I like to use this number, 8675309. Okay. <laughs> 8675309 equals remote view the Eiffel Tower. And then uh, you know, speaking kind of um, symbolically here, I tear the sheet in half. I give the viewer 8675309. The viewer never sees the remote view of the Eiffel Tower half of it. <clears throat> so I'll tell you very briefly what I think is going on here. So the viewer gets that number, 8675309, has no idea what that has to do with because there's no content to that. There's nothing in there that says Eiffel Tower, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens is their subconscious, which appears to be the thing that links um, or connects us to the greater universe. And, you know, I don't know. There's lots of hand-waving you could get into here, but somehow links us to the signal. Um, the, sub, the viewer subconscious goes out into the universe, scouts around for what that number, 8675309, was linked to. Um, now, if we actually use that number, they find a song, but we won't go there, right? So <laughs> they, they find the number stands for... The subconscious finds the number stands for remote view of the Eiffel Tower. Now, the conscious awareness, the one where it appears to be doing all the work but really isn't, doesn't ever become aware of that uh, to start with. So, but the subconscious then directs this viewer's subconscious attention to, to the target, and then the viewer, through the process that I teach them, uh, brings the information, the relevant information, up into conscious awareness where it can be objectified, where it can be put out on paper and verbalized and made available for other people to understand. Hmm. Um, and then it goes from there. So the, the, in the envelope or in the tasking folder, it would have specific details like we want to know this information about the Eiffel Tower, exactly what's in the briefcase on this platform or something like that. Look inside there. But all you would get is like an eight-digit code that was randomized and put on the outside of the envelope. And then that's maybe emailed to you and you get the eight digit code and that's what you have to go off of. And 
to me, that's fascinating because numbers are such a left brain intellectual side of things. But when you begin the tasking, there's a lot of methods uh, um, where you start out drawing those numbers and then it sort of tails off at the end into more of an artistic, ambiguous drawing on the paper or on the dry erase board that suddenly fall into the subconscious or into that visionary realm and that gets caught or like fishing, you suddenly catch a signal, like going into the static of the frequency of reality and then finding that uh, target number emerge out of, out of the ether and you sort of see it or visualize it. Uh, Can you talk about what that sort of feels like or how you perceive that as you go through that? Or first I want to say, I really like that phrase you use frequency of reality. That'd be an awesome rock band name. wouldn't It (laughs) It would be right. (laughs) Yeah, so first of all, I want to comment. Uh, yes, numbers are speaking very simplistically, but still with some legitimacy. Numbers tend to be left brain resident kinds of things, right? They, they're, mm. they're processed in the left brain. In this case, I'm not so sure the left brain has much to do with it. Uh, it recognizes them, obviously, but they really act as kind of a symbol in a way, okay. uh, a symbol that links the viewer to something else. It doesn't matter. Uh, you could have an equation 2 plus 2 equals 4, and the viewer wouldn't even care. <laughs> Almost like a Rorschach ink blot. It's just yeah. like a, a symbolic trigger that allows the, yes. the mind to open up. And I call it the kind of a ready, set, go thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a ready, set, go, and then you go, right? Now, who knows? We are far away from being able to, to delve into brain functioning and figure out what's really going on uh, with this. But I, I think, at least from my experience, uh, is that it really isn't cognized as a number, but more as just a connector to what the intention is, the tasker's intentionality uh, mm-hmm. of the target. So what happens when you get it, you write the number down, and then you make what we call an ideogram. And again, we're talking about a specific kind of remote viewing called controlled remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens to be probably the most common one in use out there right now, but uh, but there are other modes of remote viewing that don't involve going through this process. Um, they don't largely because you're not don't usually have a pen in your hand and you're not usually sitting at a table with some paper so you couldn't get the ideogram or write down coordinates anyway so mm-hmm. but we'll leave that aside for the moment so you, you write this down and then there's this kind of reflexive creation of the ideogram which is oh there's a lot to go into on that so I'm, I'm not going to burden you with that but it essentially is a a kinesthetic so in other words an inner body muscle kind of a yeah. thing a kinesthetic response to connecting with the signal line, as we call it, the, the informational uh, conveyance of of the data that you get uh, that comes into your, your mind and body. So and you create the ideogram, and there are some things you can learn from that, and you write those down. Basically, the goal is, of this first part of it is just to determine the basic gen- general nature of this thing. We call it a gestalt. But mm-hmm. is it land? Is it water? Is it structure? Um, is it an event? Is it a person? Whatever. And then uh, once you capture that just very general thing, and this only takes a few seconds, then you get into engaging with the sensory experience of being there. You essentially ask the question, what would I experience if I was physically at this target? Hmm. And um, then you start getting things like colors, qualities of light, smells, tastes, sounds, textures, tactiles, temperatures, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and here's an interesting I don't know if it's exactly a paradox, but an interesting feature of this, and that is we talk about this being a 
remote viewing as being a subset of extrasensory perception. There's a lot of different modes of extrasensory perception out there from like psychometry to dowsing to uh, to clairvoyance, to all of these different things. Remote viewing is one mode of exercising extrasensory perception. Hmm. Extrasensory perception actually literally means without the aid of your senses, right? People get confused. They hear the extrasensory. They think that means you've got a sixth sense. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you've got more than one sense. You're more in an additional sense. It means that you're doing this bypassing your senses. Your senses, your actual physical senses, aren't connected to the process. Right. And yet, here's the puzzle. When you start to perceive the target, it's as if you have a sensory connection. In other words, you perceive colors and shapes and, and tastes and smells and sounds and all that stuff. And, and I think what this demonstrates is that uh, there is some mode of conveying information that actually, without stimulating your actual op retinas and optical nerves and visual cortex, what it does is it bypasses that and it directly stimulates the personal perceptual centers in the brain. And so you experience this as a sensory experience, even though you're not seeing and smelling and tasting and touching in a real physical way. Hmm. Yeah. So that's very comparable to like when you have a very, I don't know if you've ever experienced a vivid lucid dream moment, but the moment that you recognize that it is a dream, uh, first of all, I always question what is everything made of if, I'm in a dream. What is that over there made of if not a subconscious manifestation that's interfaced with my expectations and, and all of that? But this is something else where you're actually entering an altered state of consciousness or, or in a Zen-like state, potentially uh, maybe using, we can talk about the Monroe Institute and hypnagogic states even and, and opening that up. But the, so you get that initial uh, signal, you're, you're coming through with the, the eight digits and let's say it's the Eiffel Tower, you may get sort of like a, a, a rigid line and then it shoots up and certain sort of kinesthetic flow or like free association comes out that you as a remote view, uh, viewer have become familiar with kind of like, oh, this feels like a structure, it feels rigid or vertical, mm -hmm. it feels man-made and, 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 then, and then it maybe quickly falls into that second level like you're saying, where the synesthesia or sort of the being there-ness sort of sets in in a way where you're feeling mm -hmm. the maybe the humidity or the weather a little bit and sort of sensory, but it's not like directly seeing it right. or feeling it. There's just sensations. Is that is that what you're describing? Is that accurate? Yeah, I describe. So there's way, different ways this this experience happens and uh, at different times with different different people. So um, if you're actually having a a sensory experience, at least in the sense, in the sense, there we go, we need more words, right? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, in, in the way I'm discussing it here, where you, your eyes aren't actually seeing anything, your physical eyes aren't seeing anything, and yet you're having a visual experience, right? Yeah. Um, I, I talk about this being kind of like a half-remembered memory. It isn't vivid as if you're actually literally there seeing it. It's like you have this half-remembered memory. If you remember back some vague vague recollection of something that happened to you in the past. Uh, it's of that quality, and yet this is something you know is new. This is not something that's coming out of your memory banks. Hmm. It's a new thing, yet it has that quality. Um, other ways, there's sometimes you just like feel like you know it's there, and you don't know how you know it. Um, I like to use the, the experience of red. Sometimes you get this, actually, actually feel like you're seeing red. You kind of see a color 
a, a shade of red in your in your in your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's you know this vague kind of thing. Other times, you don't see anything. You have no impression of that, and yet you know there's red there, and so mm -hmm. you just put it down. A, a lot of people second guess themselves. They think, well, I feel like there's red there. I'm not seeing any red. I'm not going to put that down because I don't have any verification. Well, no, you got to put it down because that can be information through a kind of different sensory processing channel. And it almost always is. You have to learn to trust your instincts on this, right? You trust your in intuition, but people are reluctant to do that because they don't want to be wrong. See, this is where the Zen comes in again. They don't want to be wrong, and so they won't put down the experiences they're actually getting impressions about because they don't get it in some way they're familiar with. Mm. If you feel like in a remote viewing session, if you feel like there's something red there, put it down because nine times out of ten you're going to be right. You don't know how you're right, but it, it's it's there. So so you got these different ways that, that, that the information uh, comes in and the impressions come in. Um, so you can't be selective as to what you're going to acknowledge and what you're not, right? Yeah, that makes sense. You might get the impression of something really strong uh, and feel like it's totally off from yeah. everything else, but uh, it turns out that if, if you don't jump to conclusions or start having all that analyzing, overlaying, and muddying the waters, uh, it might fit in better when you actually understand what the tasking was or see it from a different perspective and realize, oh, or, or, or maybe there was a little bit of time slippage where you saw something just ahead of or just in the past of the target, uh, something different that actually adds to the information. It seems like that happens as well. Yeah, the interesting thing here is surprises oftentimes are right. You know, mm -hmm. and, and if you're if you're confident that you're right, you're almost always wrong. Here, here we get more with Zen and, and, and some paradoxes and stuff. Uh, very often, if you're going along, and all of a sudden something makes no sense to you from what you've already got, it doesn't make any sense. It's there. That will actually turn out to be right, and the stuff that did make sense to you will be your left brain constructing a story for you, and it'll be wrong. You have to kind of learn to understand, and it comes from practice, training, and practice. Uh, you're gonna have to you have to learn to recognize what the wrong stuff feels and sound and and seems like, and recognize what the right stuff is. In fact, people say, well, what do you teach someone when you're teaching them to be a remote viewer? And I say, well, you can break it down into really simple elements, but as usual, the devil's in the details, right? So, hmm. what I teach people is two things, and then a combination of them. The first thing is I teach them how to recognize this very subtle signal that is carrying the actual legitimate information. Then I teach them to recognize the noise, not necessarily in particular order here, but then I, re I also recognize them, I teach them how to recognize the noise, the things that are indicators that you're getting noise. Hmm. Okay, And and so then, uh, then I help them understand how to tell the difference between those things and what to do about, about those things, right? Hmm. So, and it sounds really simple. Just Learn, learn to recognize the signal, learn to recognize the noise. But it's huge trying to do that because oh, yeah. it's a process that we don't normally pursue in normal human existence in everyday physical world. Yeah, most people are caught up in the mental processes of the day-to-day -day and the thought processes and that constant conversation and overlay of visualizing and trying to solve your problems. It's another thing to enter like a Zen state of mind and become more of a, a witness to all of that. Push your thought processes and visualizations a little bit out in front of you and observe it sort of from a different perspective where you're more open and 
and neutral uh, and observing what's happening and then learning how to sort through that or glide through that in such a way where you're staying uh, on your intention of the tasking and focusing that intention on, on the target. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Some of the ways or methods that you could recommend to people that are interested in remote viewing or even just getting started in meditation in general uh, to help with that. Do you do Zen meditation or, or different types of meditation? Do you use the Monroe Institute method or have you met Bob Monroe or in the by, uh, can you explain maybe binaural sounds and is sure. that effective or not? Okay, so that's about 52 questions. There, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have so many. I'm like, so, okay, the clock's ticking. Me, I got to get out. Start with the meditation thing. I, yeah. I've never been a meditator, uh, at least in any formal kind of a way. Um, and you can do remote viewing actually quite well even without meditating, without being a meditator. But there's evidence that suggests you actually pick it up quicker if you are a meditator. Generally speaking, people who meditate seem to have a bit more of a easier road to hoe to get up to to speed with remote viewing. But you don't need it. Now, what I we did at Fort Meade actually uh, during the first my first time there. Um, later on, we didn't do it so much because it was Skip Atwater uh, who was our training and operations officer. And he was very connected with the Monroe Institute. In fact, went off to become their chief scientist after his retirement and ultimately become president of it, right? So um, so he was very much into that, and so we used Hemisync Tank. Now, what Hemisync is is um, very briefly, I hope it's not too brief for understanding, uh, you wear headphones, and there's a stereo a player of some kind, and it feeds one signal, it's kind of a hum, into one ear, and then another signal into another ear, but it's very, very quiet, so you don't really necessarily hear it and these signals just out of phase just a little bit so what happens is anytime like if you're tuning a guitar and you get two the two strings really close together it'll start to waver a little bit the tone yeah. waver right well it's these signals are designed to set up a frequency that is harmonious to both hemispheres and it gets them kind of synchronized that's what i call it hemisync right hemispheric synchronization uh, because the tones meet in the middle and set up this beat frequency that at the right frequency, the brain tends to harmonize on that. So you get both hemispheres uh, communing with one another, if you will, right? Mm. Um, and it does, it's very interesting. There's a lot of interesting effects that come out of that uh, in terms of enhancing concentration or well-being, that kind of thing. Um, we used it just the very, what they call focus levels, focus 10 and focus 12, yeah. to try and get us uh, in a kind of a mind awake, body asleep state, uh, kind of get get us working together in the hopes that it would limit the, the mental noise that comes through and in a way enhance our perception of the signal. And I think it worked, and we used it quite a bit uh, for my first year or two there. Uh, the thing about hemisync is you can learn to set up that that uh, that cooperation between the hemispheres without even having it as uh, having the hemisync signal once you kind of get the hang of it and kind of understand it. And so maybe some of that uh, plays a role in my in my remote viewing even today. I don't consciously set it up, but it may it may it, it, it seems to enhance things a little bit. So yeah, it seems like at least for the for me when I discovered the hemisync and binaural stuff and did the gateway, it it just helped me understand kind of the layers of the the mm -hmm. onion within myself a little bit to understand. Oh, I feel like I'm kind of like at a level 
seven. I'm not quite at a ten. I'm still very here, and I need to go back a little bit here. And mm-hmm. and it kind of gave me a good barometer, sort of to tune myself in. I feel like, but as an initial thing. But what do you feel like remote viewing? If we want to jump into it a little bit deeper, so if you're able to actually accurately perceive and, and validate a lot of times these target locations, only knowing coordinates off of a tasking and then mm-hmm. compare it to a whole team of other people and find out that, you know, five or six or maybe 10 people in the group all seem to have remote viewed and gathered and compiled information that feels accurate. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us about the nature of reality and human consciousness, maybe not being trapped to the wet works of the brain and inside the skull, but having a connection outside the body, like you said at the beginning of this interview, mm-hmm. uh, having a we are more than our physical body. And what does remote viewing tell us about that? I, th- I think the the process and the results that you've discussed uh, are still ambiguous in terms of what it tells us, but it lessens the ambiguity dramatically from what we normally ha- uh, understand. So um, first off, the fact that you have multiple remote viewers remote viewing the same target and they end up with, uh, with uh, results, uh, reports from them that, seem to um, tie into the same target. Okay, so that's that's achievable uh, even if you if remote viewing is a unitary experience where you're not linking into anybody else's consciousness, you're just going to the target, you know, speaking figuratively, going to the target, collecting that information and bringing it back. You would expect that uh, in, in even normal human perception, if five or six people look at the same event, they will have overlapping perceptions that all match because it's the same event, right? Um, interestingly, in the same way, the remote viewing results uh, will not, they won't be identical across the board. Each, each viewer will have perceived the target somewhat differently from a different perspective, just like five people watching the same accident will see some things in common and, and confuse other things like one person it's a red car and it's actually a white car and another person thinks it's blue. You know, you see these kind of things are called the witness effect that we don't see things. Uh, we interpret, we see the things, we always see the things exactly the way it is, but we interpret our experience differently. Right. Mm. And that happens in a remote viewing setting as well. Um, the fact that we can actually though produce legitimate valid information about a target that's potentially on the other side of the planet and, well, no, I mean, we have done that, right? That is on the other side of the planet or in a secure facility which nobody has any access that we are connected with. Um, that does say that our, at least our, the perceptual aspects of our consciousness is not restricted to the insides of our, our insides of our skull. Hmm. That in, in fact, we do seem to have this ability to transcend um, the normal restrictions of the physical existence at least mentally, and perceive and experience things that in normal physical existence it's impossible to do. Um, so I think that's probably one of the more profounder things uh, that we get from remote viewing. Not just that it can be useful, and it has been and continues to be, but what it actually says about human nature is actually quite profound, uh, especially in terms of what our current scientific paradigm allows. I agree. It seems to speak to and indicate to the nature of non-local human consciousness, meaning that like uh, just because we're here in a physical body as a as a 
point of reference, our subconscious and actual consciousness and the abilities of us uh, as a living entity actually transcend that in a way we're already interdimensional or extra dimensional and we don't realize it in infancy in a sort of way. And that's why I consider people like you pioneers of, and explorers of this field, because if you are able to view places outside of your own body, not only on the other side of the planet, at a, uh, you're talking about a different time as well. And it's, we see this a lot in remote viewing as people remote viewing, trying to predict things in the near future or remote viewing a target and realizing that they've got data from the past or something slightly alternate. So does that mean that our concept of, of time and the past and the future is maybe not linear like we think, and it's more like a solid state drive and you're able to arc your consciousness around and read the hard drive of the infinite of what all possibilities and look at it at a particular point of view. What do you think it tells us about space and time in that sense? Well, um, as, uh, as Einstein, Einstein said, well, allegedly said, I'm not sure he actually said it, is it uh, time exists to keep everything from happening at once, right? <laughs> right. Um, so first of all, I think that a lot of people think they understand time and nobody does. Uh, we don't know what time is. Uh, in my view, it is actually linear. You know, folks who, you know, there's this argument between the block universe and the, uh, and, and the, the braided universe, as I call it, where um, in terms of time, where the block universe is that time already, everything already exists, and all we are are points of perception that are moving along. Like it's a big two before that's marked into sections. Each one is a year or whatever, and we move along it uh, and perceive it. Um, I think that's actually probably not true. And, and I'll explain. I like to think that the future hasn't already happened. So. Let me explain it this way. So in remote viewing, people take remote viewing as evidence that the future already exists, that that we just, you know, we're, we, we can see in the future because it's somewhere further along the tube before and we just happen to get a different perspective on it. But in fact, the way remote viewing seems to work in remote viewing the future is that uh, you can remote view the present and the past with a, pretty much the same degree of accuracy. I, I give this kind of seat of the pants up uh, um, uh, estimate. So where um, roughly present and past a remote viewer who's trained and experienced will show that they've actually successfully remote viewed that 70 to 80% of the time. Because uh, remote viewing isn't perfect. There are times when it just fails and we don't know why. Okay, Of that 70 to 80% of the time, a really good remote viewer will have high quality results, roughly half that. So about 35 to 40% of the time. So evidence, 70 80% of the time, really good quality, 35 to 40% of the time, which in and of itself is still a miracle when you get right down to it, right? Because it shouldn't be successful at all, okay? But now when you remote view into the future, that 70 to 80% plummets to, and I don't have an exact hard number on this, but but in order of magnitude, roughly 5% success trying to remote okay. view. So you're going from major stati statistical significance, 70 to sometimes mm -hmm. up to 80% accuracy as a group. And as you're probing into the future, that drops clear down below 10% and gets very, like very, the, the waveform has not collapsed yet. You're just, <laughs> yeah. Very, very dramatic difference. And, right. and people say, well, wait a minute. I thought being psychic was all about predicting the future. 
And I say, not really. <laughs> You've been misled in a certain way. The reason we've come to associate with remote viewing the future or to the perceiving the future, foretelling the future, is because nothing else can do that. Right? It's the right. only tool we have for doing that. I mean, you can always extrapolate, but you know, if you look at some of the predictions from popular mechanics in the 30s to what the 2000s would look like, yeah, there's a couple of hits there, but most of them are totally gone, right? Totally, totally wrong. Yeah. So uh, we can extrapolate, but that's not the same thing. Here we're trying to claim that we can actually see into whatever seeing here means, see into the future and essentially get information of the present from the future. And yet it doesn't seem to work very well, okay? So it's come to be associated with being, being psychic is telling the future. Well, what? and sometimes it does, right? But what people forget or aren't aware of, that you don't report the times it failed. You report only the times it worked. Mm -hmm. And so you hear all these success stories, but if you go in and if you were able to then collect all of the failure stories as well, you'd find that maybe five out of 100 are success stories and 95 out of 100 totally didn't work. You didn't get any stuff about the future, okay? And there's a long discussion about that, but the evidence remote viewing tells me that the future does not exist. That it is, if you get it right, it's usually because the future you do describe is something that is going to come true in the near future and it has a deterministic cause. Yeah. It's something that is going to happen no matter what, no matter what happens, right? Um, and, and generally you can tend to remote view deterministic things, things that are directly determined by what's happening now in the future. The things that are really hard to remote view are the things that aren't deterministic, usually involving human intentionality, human choices and stuff. So um, that's an indicator to me the future doesn't exist. Now, people will bring up the notion of associative remote viewing, which maybe you know about. Uh, associative remote viewing is a way of predicting, like if a stock price is going to go up or down, or, or if one team or another is going to win a sporting event, so you can bet on it. Uh, or invest in the stock or sell. Like uh, Daz Smith and those guys do cryptocurrency predictions yes, and crypto things like that. Crypto, you know, right. what, what's the future? Uh, future? They, they're not looking for the price. They're looking for if it's up or down and, and magnitude if possible, right? Hmm. The reason that works, and that works about equal to doing the present or the past, the reason that works is because what you're doing actually is setting up a deterministic future. Hmm. You have a guaranteed feedback event in the future that's going to provide you the information that you report now. So I talk about it in terms of it's like you're you're collapsing all of these possible unrealized futures down in one small corner of the timeline to an actual deterministic event. Mm. And you are then remote viewing along that narrow, certain to happen channel. Mm. And that's why ARV, now even ARV doesn't work 100% of the time, but it does work about the same degree as remote viewing present or past. Mm. Very interesting. So maybe, you know, we've been going here almost 50 minutes and I want to hear some of your amazing stories. The time flies by and I don't have any time limit. If you don't, we can go as long as you want, but I'm really curious. So uh, we're talking about uh, being able to see different times along the timeline and that works for the present looking mm -hmm. into the past, uh, like maybe looking at the JFK assassination or different things like that, uh, that you could get tasked to do and not realize it. Um, but like Hal Putoff and, and some of these guys and even Ingo Swan in his book Penetration, um, they were involved supposedly in operations where they were taken to try and remote view 
mysterious things, things that maybe you couldn't validate, like uh, UFO locations or sightings or crashes or like Area 51. I kind of, we have a lot of our audience here that's interested in that and interested in this phenomenon with remote viewing as a valid way of maybe exploring this topic. And I know that it's something that, you know, unless you have somebody on the UFO or also there to confirm the the sighting uh, or whatever, it's hard to validate and know for sure. But what are some of the more fascinating experiences that you've had involved in remote viewing with maybe what the UFO phenomenon is with or UAPs? Or, yeah. uh, or are you convinced that these are a, a real thing? What do you think it is? Well, uh, let me... First off, start by saying uh, Hal Putoff himself has not ever been involved in remote viewing. The story you alluded to is actually one Ingo Swan talked about mm-hmm. uh, fairly late in life, and uh, there's no verification that happened. I, the only thing I say is that um, Ingo has always never, ever told me a tall story that he was uh, not sure that actually happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, could he have been misled into what happened? I don't know. I mean, there's pretty vivid experience. So it, it's hard for me to imagine that he is misled. Would he? Could he have made it up and told people about it? I don't think so. Uh, Ingo did not operate that way. So whatever it was that happened, he actually believed it was the way he told it in, in his book, for example. Uh, Pat Price, one of the early remote viewers, also had some experience remote viewing UFO kinds of things, right? And, and yeah. others have as well. Pat Price is the one that said he found actual alien bases like yes. on Earth and in different yeah. locations, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and to some degree, have those, I don't know, they haven't been very strongly corroborated, uh, but there is some kind of marginal evidence that suggests there might be at least something to that, right? Hmm. So um, uh, let's see, where do I want to go with this? Um, so one thing I want to say is you got to be cautious with remote viewing UFO things, because there's been a lot of fantasy that's developed out of that. Hmm. People think that they're getting legitimate information, remote viewing a particular UFO event. It's just not. It's bogus. Or conspiracy. I mean, people are trying to do conspiracy. Um, one of the things that um, that is important about the remote viewing uh, protocol, at least as developed at SRI, and Ingo insisted on this as well, um, is that the targets that you work in remote viewing have to be verifiable, okay? Which means if you do a remote viewing event that there's no actual known ground truth to, you're working at non-verifiable target, and that would not have been considered actual legitimate remote viewing. Now, I'm not, don't, I'm not saying don't do that, but bear in mind there are plenty of UFO events that actually never happened. There are mm-hmm. clearly some that did. But there's plenty that are rumored to have happened or somebody has built a reputation on telling these big stories about them. And they're just nothing. There's not really anything there. Um, mm. So in general, you have to be careful in the UFO field because there's, as I said, I, I say uh, uh, roughly 95, 90 to 95 percent of what you hear about UFOs, aliens, et cetera, et cetera, is balderdash. There is a certain 5 to 10 percent that's true. And, of course, the challenge is sorting out what's baloney and what's fantasy from mm. the real stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so as far as my, my opinion about UFOs, um, I started off as what I like to call a kind of sympathetic uh, agnostic on it, right? Um, as, uh, as you're aware, so I belong to the only Christian denomination that actually believes of, in a point, as a point of doctrine that there's intelligent life on other planets. Okay? Mm-hmm. Right? 
the Mormon church, that's uh, one of its uh, early uh, beliefs. And doesn't mean we believe that they're little gray aliens or whatever, although who knows, right? Uh, or that they're visiting here. Uh, that We don't have any position on either of that as far as Mormons are concerned. We just believe there's intelligent life on other planets. Now, I've come to the point, though, that I think they are visiting us. Uh, there's a lot of debate about this even amongst the more credible UFO uh, ufology, if you will, UAP uh, study circles, um, what exactly is going on from, from dimensional access to, uh, to, you know, from the future to, to actual space aliens coming here, whatever. I don't know. I don't have a, a strong opinion on that, except that whatever is visiting here, or at least doing reconnaissance or whatever the heck it is they're doing, they are not from here, right? They're, mm. they're truly extraterrestrial, maybe extratemporal, but I kind of inclined not to think that. Mm. Um, I am absolutely convinced of that now uh, for various reasons, some of which I can talk about, some of which I can't. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced about that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm still not very careful about getting into the, what I call anomaly, uh, anomaly targets and such. Um, so uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning another podcast on here, but no, go ahead. Uh, but uh, some of you folks may be familiar with Jeffrey Mishlove's New Thinking Aloud. Uh, I did an interview for him, and I'm happy to explore the same subject with you at some point, uh, called Remote Viewing Anomaly Targets, in which I, I both talk about the promises and the pitfalls and the cautions that are involved in trying to remote view unconfirmed, you know, uh, anomalistic kinds of targets, including... UAPs or, or um, cryptozoology targets, things like that. Um, and then I'll put in a plug for my channel. So uh, you can find all my Mishlov interviews linked on, and I'm going to put yours there too, by the way. Mm, once thank it's published, you. Uh, on my remote viewing slash remote perception channel on YouTube. I've got a bunch of videos there. And I'll uh, put that down in the description of this video as well as soon as we're done here so everybody thanks. watching can find it. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and we did a fair number of these, uh, not necessarily intentionally, because as a remote viewer, you've got to be blind to mm. the target, right? So we did a bunch of these um, at Fort Meade, and it was frowned on by the, by the hierarchy, by the command, the chain of command. But again, it's really hard to, for them to find out they were even doing them. Now, I, I didn't volunteer to do these. Uh, a couple of them... I don't say, I can't remember how many, but more than a couple, but but a handful of, of these kinds of UAP targets um, I did for Skip Atwater. He tasked me on it without alerting me that it was a weird weird target, target right? And those I kind of trust because uh, Skip was very careful in, in the protocol. He was very cautious and and um, didn't have agendas. He, he was had a very neutral mindset on these things, didn't know what they were, was going to give it a try. So those I felt pretty good about. Um, folks out there are probably familiar with Ed Dames, and he he worked us on a whole bunch of these, and I'm less confident in the data that we produced in those, because Ed was not nearly as careful as, as Skip, and and, uh, and so we, I, I have some issues with those. Um, I have done some since. I did a um, couple of lunar projects, Far Side of the Moon, mm. with Ingo Swan, again, blind. I didn't know what the targets were. Uh, produced some really fairly interesting data, um, including indicating there are weird things on the far side of the moon, including one of my perceptions, and and I'll give you a caveat here in a minute, but one of my perceptions was of a kind of a sentient spacecraft that was like part biological, part whatever, 
This was long before, of course, those things showed up in, in Stargate, uh, the Stargate series. What was it? Stargate, Stargate Atlantis. I like living right. conscious craft yeah. themselves. Yeah. They were part, partly artificial, partly biological, right? Um, wow. Um, so this is long before Stargate and before Battle, the second iteration of Battlestar Galactic, where he had something similar. So I'm picking this up, and it was really quite weird, uh, but it seemed to be both sentient and, and inanimate, and combined of both elements, right? So, I mean, that's just kind of a real brief example. Uh, most of what I got was not necessarily exceptional, but it did indicate underground activity on the far side of the moon, like a base-like kind of an uh, environment. You know, what do I make of that? I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to tell you that that was real. I'm not going to tell sure. you I was absolutely right about that because I have not got confirmation of it. And um, and I do know that remote viewing sometimes doesn't work and sometimes fantasy gets built in and whatever. But my data actually uh, overlapped with Ingo's data and with another guy's data. So it, it at least gave me food for thought. It's an interesting experience stuff that I would not have made up on my own. I would not have made that up. Uh, in fact, uh, I generally tried to avoid those kind of targets altogether. Hmm. So is it real? I don't know. I'd love to have us go find out. <laughs> yeah, so like Skip Atwater, somebody, the tasker, they give you the target and the, the eight-digit numbers, uh, double blind. You have no idea that it's uh, the far side of the moon, the back side of the moon. You're For all you know, it could be somewhere in Arizona or somewhere down in Mexico or over in Russia? It's actually what I kind of thought at first because I'm getting this terrain that has no plant life on it. It's just these rocks and piles of stuff and really kind of craggy, jaggedy kind of mountains. And and uh, and, and that's what I'm getting. I'm thinking, whoa, this place is really austere. You know, mm-hmm. uh, At some point in that session, my recollection, I have to go back and look to be sure, but at some point in that section, session, I realized there wasn't any air there. And so at that point, I started thinking, oh, this is not what I thought it was. I'm off-world somewhere. Have yeah. you? How about Mars? Have you ever been tasked and didn't know it and looked at Mars? Um, I have a couple of Mars sessions in the database. Um, I don't think mine were particularly exceptional, hmm. um, consistent with there not being anything there. So uh, other than you know what we perceive as being there presently, um, I'm not ruling out the possibility there might be some artifacts and stuff, and maybe even some kind of base. I don't know. But I'm also not ruling it in. Uh, mm-hmm. I, to me, the, the court's out. And if I had to say, I absolutely believe one or the other, I'd probably say, I don't think there's anything there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's based on a very small data set. So, right. you know, I'm not confident about anything, saying anything about it. Sure. So what about earthbound and in the oceans of Pat Price said maybe there's bases on Earth or this. There is the Pentagon recently coming out and admitting that there is UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomenon that they don't understand. Is there any uh, incidents there that even though we don't have any validation on that maybe you could speak to earthbound? Any sessions that you ran that were tasked well, some, that came back interesting? And yeah, what did you find? Was- Something I did with Skip Atwater uh, involved, for example, there's one case of a Argentinian minesweeper being found abandoned down the water. Uh, you know, food on the food on the on the table in the galley and all kinds of stuff, but just nobody there, and, and, and nobody could. The Argentinians had no idea what happened. Um, several of us remote viewed that. I remote viewed it, and I kept getting this. We call it analytical overlay, which is a form of mental noise where your imagination kicks in. I kept getting this impression of. 
well, how's it do with a UFO on a ship? A UFO on a ship. I just can't break out of that, so I quit. Well, it turned out it was a UFO. <laughs> it did have to do with a UFO on a ship, or at least uh, maybe because some of my other colleagues, Bill Ray and Tom McNair, both of them reported really weird things involving a UFO on a ship, and the UFO came up out of water. Now, you've probably seen some of those UAP videos where the, the UAP actually goes into the water at speed and just goes right in, you know. Yeah. And so that actually kind of confirms that maybe what they these guys got in that project had some legitimacy to it. Um, so anyway. Uh, so there was you know, a whole missing crew on a ship. And yes. what the what the remote viewers, a few of them saw was a UFO come up out of the ocean and scare the crew. And they ran right. off into the ocean or tried to escape and just abandoned their something strange. Jumping off the ship. One of them jumped off the ship. Another one had them. I don't think it got to the point of what happened to them exactly, but yeah, yeah, there was there was a bunch of that. Now I'm trying to think. Um, I wrote that up once for uh, for UFO magazine, which I don't think exists anymore, so he probably can't get the back issue. But uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, there there's strange things out there. I have come to actually believe the UAP phenomenon is real, and that they are not from here. What what not from here means. Uh, right now, I'm defaulting to extraterrestrial uh, from probably outside of our, mm. certainly outside of our solar system. Um, and, of course, there's lots of pushback on that. Well, you know, why would they be here in the first place? Well, what about the uh, the velocity of light limitation, et cetera, et cetera? You know, as far as I'm concerned, none of those are good arguments because we assume that our science at the current state is all there is to know about science. And we know for a fact there isn't. Uh, you know, I'd studied philosophy of science in my PhD, and um, Carl Hempel is famous for the, the uh, Hempel dilemma, which is uh, the one thing we know about our current science is that it is incomplete and false. Hmm. And, uh, and the other thing we know about it is that we have no idea what a complete and true science paradigm you know, would look like. And so basically, to assume that we know enough now to be able to make those kind of definitive judgments is just the typical arrogance that we as humans develop when we when we mistake what we can see to be the whole universe. And that was a famous saying from Schopenhauer and, and Wittgenstein was that the, that humans often mistake their field of view for being the whole of everything. And as we well know, you get the you get what about 80, 80 degree uh, vision. Well, there's all the rest of that back there. You're not seeing right. So, yeah. so to conclude that just because we believe something about science would limit visitation from other systems just because you believe that doesn't mean that we're right about that so i completely agree with you and even that 80 80 degree field of vision is limited to the colors of the rainbow and their different combination we have the the limited colors of the rainbow and then below the color red you have to look into the infrared spectrum and above blue you have to get into the ultraviolet out off of purple and just because we're on that dial on the radio or that particular frequency for our physical reality does not mean that there doesn't exist entire dimensions of reality outside that in the static or off off of our rainbow into those other spectrums or other dimensions of reality and uh, they bring up a good point over in the comments have you are you able to or have you ever in a remote viewing experience uh, seemed to interact with or encountered another dimensional being or a higher dimensional being maybe described uh, something to do with the afterlife maybe or anything well, like that. The easy answer there is no. 
Um, but the little more complicated answer is, how would you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the fact is, I haven't really encountered or interacted with anything uh, out there, with an exception. I talked about that uh, sentient spaceship. Mm. I did have the feeling that it was perceiving me at the same time I perceived it. Right mm. Now, was that real? I don't know. It was certainly interesting, and it was certainly something I didn't expect to experience. Mm. And so that right there at least makes me not reject it right out of hand. I may or may not have. But other than that, I don't, I've not had an experience where I interacted with any kind of an entity in a remote viewing space. Um, mm. Could it happen? Maybe. Uh, do people report it? Yes. Uh, are they telling the truth? They think they are, <laughs> right? Um, did it really happen? I don't know, and neither do they. Until you get some type of confirmation, uh, then there's no way. So, so far, nobody has said, I perceived so-and-so out there. When I was remote viewing, I ran across this person, and they recognized I was there, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the confirmation for that would be to go out, find that person, mm. and have them report a similar experience at the same time, uh, and perhaps even describe the individual they had that interaction with. If you had enough instances of that, you would have evidence that that does happen. But mm. there is none, literally none of that evidence yet. So, you know, maybe that's a future science experiment if somebody wants to give it a try. But yeah. I think it's very hard to do. Uh, but, you, you know, what the heck? It's definitely an interesting point and phenomenon to, you know, if you had a whole group of remote viewers looking at that blind location on the backside of the moon and there's a, a craft that happens to be there. And not only do you witness the craft is living and sentient, but it seems to somehow notice that you're there viewing it. And that's a whole other level of interaction. Uh potentially, especially if multiple people were able to witness that. And it seems like it's one of those things that's still just at the pioneering edge of this phenomenon and being able to research it and, and validate yeah, have, it is, is yeah, a challenge. I have to tell you, even that wouldn't be conclusive evidence to have a bunch of people report the same thing. Right. We have this phenomenon in remote viewing that occurs from time to time called telepathic overlay, where, yeah. where a, a other people involved in a project pick up on what one person is either experiencing or imagining, and they reported as if they had had that experience. So, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe they would pick up on that individually and, and report the the data that they're getting themselves, and that would be corroboration. But they might just be picking up on the fantasy of one very strong remote viewer mm. who is off into la-la land on that particular project, and they report that as if it's there. And, and because you can't tell the difference, you mm. don't know. So... The, the really the gold standard is able to provide objective, verifiable evidence about it, um, and so yeah, it's it's thought provoking, but is it conclusive? Well, not really, actually. So. Definitely. So there's a few questions that have popped up in the comments section. Uh, basic advice on if somebody was getting started in meditating or remote viewing down this path. Uh, what do you recommend about the environment? Eyes open, eyes closed. Should they have a piece of paper and a pen? Or is there on your website where you teach this, is there tools available or things where they so can go and learn? Let me put in a plug for my book. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Perfect. There it is. The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. I hope that's that's straight. It <laughs> is. Yeah. Backwards. Yes. The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. I have two chapters in here on how to do it yourself. Okay. 
Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it off the book page. I, I, I will send out a signed copy if you, if you buy it off my book page. But you can get it off Amazon. But all that said, um, I have two chapters that get you started. I do have a video out there, uh, which you might find interesting. It's called How to Do a Simple Remote Viewing. Hmm. It's on YouTube. It's also linked on my uh, YouTube channel that I mentioned, uh, the Remote Viewing slash Remote Perception channel. Uh, you can find it there as well. And it, it's enough to get you started. Um, and um, yes, so a another resource you might be interested in is my blog. It's called the Remote Viewing slash Remote Perception blog. Are you starting to hear a theme here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, and I have a bunch of articles on there that actually are helpful for remote remote viewers as well and people who want to be remote viewers. Um, and I might as well put in my final plug. I also have the Remote Viewing slash Remote Perception Facebook group, which uh, if you want to have very remote viewing focused uh, discussions, that's a great place to go. Uh, there's a lot of remote viewing groups out there. Most of them allow uh, all kinds of topics and subject matter besides remote viewing. Uh, and that's fine. I, I don't disagree with having a wide variety of, of discussion, but they're supposed to be remote viewing groups and they don't really discuss a lot of remote viewing many times. My group, that's all we talk about is remote viewing. Uh, as long as uh, it has a remote viewing connection. So uh, that's great. That's and, enough advertising, right? <laughs> and any more plugs uh, again your, for your books or any other books that you recommend people get th that like to read? I know my mom loves to read and she's going to watch this show, probably go mm -hmm. get all the books. So what would be like if you said, here are the books that you need to get? You've got uh, the two books that you've written. Yeah. Any others that you would say are just standard works in the remote? My second field? book, by the way, no, my first book actually was reading the enemy's mind. You might find that interesting too. Well, the first one and, and the first ever remote viewing book is, is still one of the best. It's called, um, um, <laughs> gee, I can't believe, by Targan Putoff, um, Mind Reach. Mind Reach. Targan Putoff, yeah. yeah. Great place to start. Talks about the early days of the process. Uh, Ingo Swan's got some good books out there. Most of them are now available through Kindle now, now that he's passed on. Um, he has his his autobiography to kiss earth goodbye is a great a great read hmm. um, and he's got natural ESP uh, which is a bit about remote viewing it's more about being psychic in general if you will so th there's some good sources there uh, another famous remote viewer Joe McMonigle has a book called remote viewing secrets which is a nice uh, a nice tutorial on the process of remote viewing that's probably a good place to start, are those. Um, uh, you may also find, hopefully I'm not inundating people with info here. No, you're right. You might also find the International Remote Viewing Association really helpful. Um, it's a nonprofit organization. We're having a conference actually out in New York in, in September. But if you just go to irva.org, uh, you can find out about that. And there's a lot of background information on, on remote viewing. And uh, it, it's there to help uh, promote a responsible exercise and practice of remote viewing. So it's a great organization. So yeah, so that's that's a whole load of stuff. Uh, that's fantastic. We have a lot of people that are going to go dig into all of those and try to check it out and go over to your YouTube. Before we run and I let you go, Paul, I'd love to hear any more really cool stories that you have about some of the remote viewing experiences where you stepped away from the group and thought, wow, this really changes my perception of into something that I didn't think of. Uh, like Doug, for example, he has a comment 
a classic one, Antarctica and the Fourth Reich in South America. Have you done anything, any other weird mysteries like that with Antarctica or? No, and I and I don't believe it either, but that's okay. I know there's folks to do, so I, let's not go that route. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I do have to say one thing. Sure. Um, I'll tell you this story, and then we can come on another time, and I'll tell you some of the because they all take time to. to Absolutely, I'd love that. So, I'm at uh, Fort Meade, and our boss at the time was Bill Ray, who's a really good friend of mine, and he helps me with my classes actually when I have enough students. Uh, and he, he was the boss at the time, and he always liked to wear this kind of. Uh, sport coat, shooting jacket with the patches on the elbows and stuff. And this is back when you could smoke in a government facility. So he's walking along, he's got his pipe, you know, and he, and he passes me in the, there in the middle of our little operations building. He says, Paul, you know what amazes me about this, about this remote viewing stuff? I said, no, Bill, what amazes you about remote viewing? He says, what amazes me about this is that it doesn't amaze me anymore. <laughs> which was really quite profound now it's not strictly true i mean every once in a while you get something that blows your door blows your socks off Definitely. but uh but nonetheless it, it did get to be a bit of a just another job and people that say you know they, they come in and they say okay paul it's time to to go over and project your mind to the other side of the planet and tell us what the russians are up to and, and you know go through the ether and all that and I said, oh, crap, do I have to do another one today? Like, ah, I didn't even have breakfast yet. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. So, so it is interesting that even this can be commonplace when you get involved in it a lot. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's really quite amazing. And and when one of my students does really well, I still just celebrate. It's just, a, it's just great. So anyway. That's fantastic. One final question that I have for you is, what do you think the implications are as we come out with future technology uh, we have this idea of implants. We have biogenetic implants or virtual reality, augmented reality. What role yeah. do you think remote viewing or conscious controlled technology and how that will, might interface uh, as far as yeah. using the mind in order to control and interface with technology besides using our thumbs and keyboards? Well, first of all, there's a lot of misinformation about that, speculation stuff. The science writers themselves are famous for, for, for you know, going way beyond what's actually real about it, right? Yeah. So one thing is that, you know, you always hear, hear them say, well, we now have technical mind reading. You know, you can put these implants in and it'll read your mind and this baloney. It's total baloney. You you get them. Well, this is also another topic that I could go on about for a long time. Sure. Um, you don't have mind reading because each one of us, our brain processes are different. There are commonalities there. But for example, when when I think of dog, the brain configuration is totally different than when you think of dog, right? The the, the processing in the mo module, if you want to use that term, yeah. that process this idea about animals, right? The the configuration of neurons and and firing of neurons, that stuff, is different than everybody else. It's called the multiple realizability in philosophy of mind. The idea that the configurations is different for each of us, and, and it's in the context of our social interaction that we come to unify our conversation, our communications there. So you can, you can put an implant in that could read one person's mind, uh, but it would have to be taught what that person is thinking how what the confirmation is for mm. each of the concepts that person might have in their head. And it is not, as they say in science, isomorphic. It's not the same as anybody else's content. So it won't translate across 
unless the machine can also learn the way the other person understands that stuff. So, uh, I'm sorry, you got me on a soapbox. Uh, oh, yeah. That's yeah. Great. So, I think that there may be use and validity for this technology, but it is not nearly what what the science writers are claiming it is. And, uh, you know, it's 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 not a threat, in my opinion, to our, our privacy of access, the, the thing that keeps us able to keep our thoughts to ourselves, unless we voluntarily allow a machine to learn what our mental processes are. So anyway, sorry, didn't no, like answer the question. Save the rest of that for next time. It's, right? It totally did. I have a friend of mine, uh, uh, Michael Mataluni, who has a, a show called The Singularity Lab, where he talks about nothing but stuff like this, the future wow. of technology and consciousness. And so I think it's a, a fantastic topic. And I would definitely love to have you back on uh, sometime. And we could talk about that, dig into more of, of the the techniques involved, some of the experiences and have, we could even have a whole show where we just did story time. And I, I could listen to you tell remote, remote viewing stories for hours and probably be fascinated with some of those. What, what you need to do is bring your tech up to Cedar City. We'll go over to my uh, training office and we'll have a live discussion. That would be fun. That'd be fantastic. In fact, I've even kicked around. I was uh, woke up the other morning. I thought, you know, what would be amazing is if I took Seth Breedlove, who's the, film producer for small town monsters. He films a lot of documentaries and cool stuff like this and have him bring a small crew up and try to put me through your school to become uh -huh. a remote viewer and see if, uh, if it's possible and maybe highlight the implications of remote viewing with the nature of reality and consciousness. And you would probably want to make that a short course because my basic course is five and a half days. So <laughs> that's the shortest one. <laughs> No, I can do it. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've seen the film Superhuman. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I did a, a short, or, and also with Rob Lowe, and I taught Rob Lowe and his kids, right? Um, I, I can teach a, a few-hour course, which is just the very down basics, you know, of, of doing it, and, and you'll have some success. Uh, to learn the fully leaded version, though, is, is a lot more work, so... See, I could come and check myself in like a rehab clinic for a month and see what happens. <laughs> Some people would think you'd have to check yourself into a rehab clinic afterwards. <laughs> right, probably. Well, uh, Paul, I appreciate your time so much. I know that it's valuable and that uh, I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to be able to answer some of the questions, clear up some of the, the validation questions and the skeptical sure. approaches that people have, and then tell some really uh, cool stories and get people interested in it, find out where they could find you. Um, well, you know, if you um, capture some of the questions we didn't answer here, they could always be fodder for another another show or something. So whatever. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Paul, we'll have you back. I want to appreciate your time and everybody for showing up in the comments over here. We're just getting this Carl Vibe show kicked off and rolling. And I consider this like one of the biggest guests, A-list guests that we've ever had on here and uh, great questions and comments. And uh, Paul, thanks so much. Make sure and check out the link down in the description below and uh, find Paul and all his work and books online. Uh, I'll post the links as well. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was awesome.